vision or have another print disability, which makes reading, holding a book, or turning a page difficult or impossible. The content is copyrighted by the respective publishers. For more information, please visit us on the web at nfradioreading.org. Hello, this is Mary Gilmore, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the current issues of the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And we're going to start with the Tuesday, May 16th edition, and... Let's see. We're going to start with Never More Than She Could Handle. Bethany Sears reimagined the Brookside after taking it over at the start of the pandemic. Not even a lifetime in business could have prepared a restaurant owner for navigating the COVID-19 pandemic. The entire food service industry was turned on its head and forced restaurant owners to rethink a significant part of their business model. Gone were the dining rooms with full tables of people sharing meals and conversations. Instead, customers would stand in socially distant lines outside a window while waiting for their takeout orders. Some restaurants managed to weather the storm, while others were forced to close their doors permanently. One restaurant in Newfane had opened under new ownership just as the pandemic forced the shuttering of dining rooms across the world. Bethany Sears, owner of the Brookside 2990 Lockport Olcott Road, got through it and used the tumult as an opportunity to reimagine her business. Sears is no stranger to the ups and downs of the restaurant business. Her father, Doug Schultz, was the owner of another well-known Newfane eatery estab- eating establishment, Castles. Eleven years old, when her father acquired the restaurant, Sears essentially grew up at Castles and worked there until it closed in 1996. She continued to work in the restaurant business afterwards at the Wilson Boathouse and Sunset Bar and Grill. Former Brookside owner Tammy Gerling approached Sears about taking over her business in 2019, <clears throat> knowing that Sears had extensive experience in the restaurant business. Sears purchased the business in November of that year and officially reopened Brookside in March 2020. Within weeks of opening her doors, she had no choice but to close them. At the time, the Brookside was operating strictly as a banquet facility. When restrictions on gatherings came down, Sears had to scale back to stay afloat. A lot of my family and friends worked for food or for free to help me make it through, she said. Sears started by selling takeout chicken and biscuit dinners. As the customers continued to line up for takeout, she slowly began to expand her menu and was able to open an ice cream stand using a small business administration grant. We had lines out in the parking lot, Sears recalls. It was learning as you go and never doing more than you could handle. While her customers were outside, Sears focused on retooling her business inside. We spent the time while it was shut down remodeling and making making it into a restaurant with the little money that we had. The success of her takeout business inspired Sears to convert the Brookside to a full-service restaurant with banquet services in addition when she reopened the dining room in October 2020. The takeout business is still huge. We do as much takeout as we do dining, she said. While the, pandem- while the pandemic did pre- present significant challenges, Sears said she learned some valuable lessons from it. I'm glad I didn't do things too quickly or try to do too much at one time and fail, she said. Four of Sears' six children currently work with her at the restaurant, and she has known many of the customers since her days at Castles. It was so nice to see the faces that watched me grow up at the other restaurant come back, she said. I'm older and they're older, but it's almost like 20 years didn't go by. Oh, that's a nice story. Our next article, For and From Wind Power. Town adjusts zoning code to accommodate a turbine manufacturer. Siva 
Powers America Incorporated, a wind turbine manufacturing company, will erect a wind turbine to power its assembly operation in the town of Lockport Industrial Park. On May 3rd, the Lockport Town Board amended the local zoning law governing height and setback requirements for wind turbines in industrial land zones. After the changes, the fall zone around the turbine must be 1.1 times the height of the turbine, which was changed from 1.5 times the height. The maximum turbine slash tower height was raised to 199 feet from 165 feet. This will not be for residential or farms. It's only in the industrial zone, town supervisor Mark Crocker noted. Also, Crocker noted a minimum 500-foot buffer between turbines and residents remains, along with the tower height times 1.5 buffer zone near power lines, railroads, roads, and occupied buildings of non-residential nature. Tom Sy, Administrative Director of the Town of Lockport Industrial Development Agency, said CIVA plans to hire 15 full-time workers and five part-time workers in the first two years of its residency at the industrial park. It's constructing, it's constructing an approximately 10,000 square foot building and always plan to power operations with wind or solar energy. It's been that way from day one, Sai said. SIVA has requested a standard 15-year payment in lieu of taxes agreement with the town. The agreement has the company paying 20% of its tax bill for two years, 30% for three years, 40% for five years, and 50% for the remaining five years. Padma Kusturigan, managing partner of Siva Powers America, said in the statement that, the town of Lockport and the IDA have been very curious to learn about our business and were very methodical to ensure our project would comply with the town ordinance. This is very encouraging for a small business making significant investment in the area. Construction is likely to begin this fall, according to Sai. In the nation, debt limit standoff continues. Era of big spending yields to new focus on deficit. In Washington, one outcome is clear as Washington reaches for a budget deal in the debt ceiling standoff. The ambitious COVID-19 era of government spending to cope with the pandemic and rebuild is giving way to a new focus on tailored investments and stemming deficits. President Joe Biden has said recouping unspent coronavirus money is on the table in budget talks with Congress, while the White House has threatened to veto Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's debt ceiling bill with its devastating cuts to federal programs, the administration has signaled a willingness to consider other budget cuts. The end result is a turnaround from just a few years ago when Congress passed and then President Donald Trump signed the historic $2.2 trillion CARES Act at the start of the public health crisis in 2020. It's a dramatic realignment, even as Biden's bipartisan infrastructure, law, and Inflation Reduction Act are now investing billions of dollars into paving streets, shoring up federal sa the, the federal safety net, and restructuring the U.S. economy. The appetite to throw a lot more money at major problems right now is significantly diminished given what we've seen over the past several years, said Shai Ekabaz, Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center, a nonpartisan organization in Washington. 
The Treasury Department has warned it will begin running out of money to pay the nation's bills as soon as June 1st. Though an estimate Friday by a nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office put the deadline at the first two weeks of June, potentially buying the negotiators' time. We've not reached the crunch point yet, Biden told reporters Saturday before flying to Delaware for the weekend. There's a real discussion about some changes we could all make. We're not there yet. Staff-level negotiators resume talks Saturday. The contours of an agreement between the White House and Congress are within reach even if the political will to end the standoff is uncertain. Negotiators are considering clawing back some $30 billion in unused COVID-19 funds, imposing spending caps over the next several years, and improving permitting reforms to ease construction of energy projects and other developments developments, according to those familiar with the closed-door staff discussions. They were not authorized to discuss the private deliberations and spoke on condition of anonymity. Oh my goodness, I'm having a tough day today. Uh, My allergies are just kicking in. Um, The White House has been hesitant to engage in talks, insisting it is only willing to negotiate over the annual budget, not the debt ceiling. And Biden's team is skeptical that McCarthy can cut any deal with his far-right House majority. There's no deal to be had on the debt ceiling. There's no negotiation to be had on the debt ceiling, said White House Press Secretary Karen Jean-Pierre. McCarthy's allies say the White House has fundamental, fundamentally underestimated what the new rep, rep, Republican leader has been able to accomplish. First, in the grueling fight to become House Speaker, and now in having passed the House bill with $4.5 trillion in savings as an opening offer in negotiations. Both have emboldened McCarthy to push hard for a deal. The White House has been wrong every single time with understanding where we are with the House, said Russ Vaught, president of of Center for American Renewal and Trump's former director of the Office of Management and Budget. They're dealing with a new animal. The nation's debt load has ballooned in recent years to $31 trillion dollars. That's virtually double what it was during the last major debt ceiling showdown a decade ago when Biden, as vice president to President Barack Obama, faced the new class of Tea Party Republicans demanding spending cuts in exchange for raising the debt limit. While the politics of the debt limit have intensified, the nation's debt is nothing new. The U.S. balance sheets have been operating in the red for much of its history, dating to before the Civil War. That's because government expenditures are routinely more than tax revenues, helping to subsidize the comforts of Americans that comforts Americans depend on. National security, public works, a federal safety net, and basic operations to keep a civil society running. In the U.S., individuals pay the bulk of the taxes, while corporations pay less than 10%. Much of the COVID-19 spending approved at the start of the pandemic has run its course, and government spending is back to its typical levels, experts say. That includes the the free vaccines, small business payroll funds, emergency payments to individuals, monthly child tax credits, and supplemental food aid that protected Americans and most in the economy. Most of the big things we did are done, and they did an enormous amount of good, said Sharon Parrott, president of the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities in Washington. We actually showed that we know how to drive down poverty, drive up health insurance amid what would have been rising hardship, she said. Last year, 
Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, which was signed into law over Republican opposition, was largely paid for with savings and new revenues elsewhere. The popularity of some spending, particularly the child tax credits in the COVID-19 relief and the Inflation Reduction Act's efforts to tackle climate change, show the political hunger in the country for the kind of investments that Americans believe will help push the U.S. fully into a 21st century economy. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. A case in point. A core group of Midwestern Republican lawmakers prevented a rollback of the Inflation Reduction Act's biofuel tax credits their colleagues wanted to scrap, persuading McCarthy to leave that out of the House bill. The federal money is propping up new investments in corn-heavy agricultural states. As McCarthy's House Republicans now demand budget reductions in exchange for raising the debt limit, they have a harder time saying what government programs and services, in fact, they plan to cut. House Republicans pushed back strenuously against Biden's claim their bill would slash veterans and other services. McCarthy, in his meeting with the president, went so far as to tell Biden that's a lie. The Republicans promised they will exempt the Defense Department and veterans' health care once they draft the actual spending bills to match up with the House debt ceiling proposal. But there are no written guarantees those programs would not face cuts. In fact, Democrats say if the Republicans spare defense and veterans from reductions, the cuts on the other departments would be as high as 22%. Budget watchers often reiterate that the debt problem is not necessarily the amount of the debt load, approaching 100% of the nation's gross domestic product but whether the federal government can continue making the payments on the debt, especially as interest rates rise. From the White House on Friday, Mitch Landrieu, the Infrastructure Implementation Coordinator, talked up the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill Biden signed into law 18 months ago. He said it is creating jobs, spurring private investment, and showing what can happen when the sides come together. We said once in a generation because it hasn't happened in our lifetimes, and quite frankly, it may not happen again in the future, he said. Housing crisis hits home. Lack of affordable housing, a struggle nationwide. Jessica McAmis thought her housing woes were over in March when she received a federal voucher that would provide $1,430 a month to help pay for a three-bedroom apartment in Howard County, Indiana. The money came at the perfect time. McAmis, a self-employed custodian, and her two teenage daughters had just been evicted after struggling to keep up the rent. I was so ecstatic, she said. I was like, yes, we're going to get out of this dump and into a great place. But that joy quickly turned to dismay. After dozens of phone calls, McAmis realized there was no housing to be found. It was either all occupied by other renters or the landlord wouldn't accept her voucher. More than two months later, McAmis and her kids still haven't found a rental. In early May, they all moved into her grandma's two-bedroom trailer, along with her 70-pound dog and two cats. If McAmis doesn't use the financial assistance in the next two months, she'll lose the money provided through the Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program. I've been almost making myself sick trying to find somewhere to go, she said. The same story is playing out in nearly every city in every state. A crushing lack of housing combined with skyrocketing rent and home loan interest rates have placed many Americans under the threat of eviction, foreclosure, or homelessness.
This series of stories reported by CNHI delves into the reasons behind the nation's staggering lack of affordable housing, how it's impacting residents, and what government officials and community leaders are doing to find solutions. Not a new issue. The nation's lack of affordable housing isn't new. Decades of underbuilding have led to a shortage of more than 7 million homes for the country's 10.8 million extremely low-income families, according to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. But pandemic-induced pressures on the market over the last three years have pushed the housing crisis to a fever pitch. New construction came to a standstill. Home and rental prices ballooned. Vacancy rates plummeted. The number of people facing evictions soared. Federal and state funding provided relief to families struggling to pay their mortgages or rent during the COVID-19 outbreak. That money is all but gone. The need for financial assistance has only grown. That's something officials at the Texas State Affordable Housing Corporation know too well. Earlier this year, the nonprofit raised $60 million in bond sales to help lower mortgage interest rates for those struggling to afford a home. So many Texans applied that the financial assistance was gone in two weeks, according to Katie Howard Claflin, the corporation's senior director of communications and development. I think that really shows you what a need there is for mortgage loans with the lower interest rate, she said. The silver lining to high rates, it cooled off the on-fire home buying market, which during the pandemic saw house prices sometimes jump by 40%. New apartment construction is also on the rise and will likely bring relief to the soaring rental rates, according to a report by Harvard University's Joint Center for Housing Studies. But that silver lining doesn't apply to the tens of millions of low-income Americans. For lower-income households and households of color, the pressure of high housing costs is unlikely to relent, the report said. The surge in the prices of gas, food, and other necessities have made matters worse, especially now that most emergency government supports have ended. Today, just one in four extremely low-income families who need assistance receive it, according to the Low Income Housing Coalition. Seventy percent of all extremely low-income families pay more than half of their income on rent, leaving little money for food and health care. Fixing the crisis is complex, but there are steps policymakers can take now to curb the growing number of Americans left behind by the nation's changing housing market, according to Chris Herbert, Managing Director of Harvard's Housing Studies Center. The pandemic has brought the long-simmering rental affordability crisis to the foray. He said, the nation has the opportunity to ensure that every household has access to a decent and affordable home. Tee off against breast cancer slated. The 24th annual fundraising tourney by Barge Canal Optimist set for June 4th. Barge Canal Optimist Club of Lockport will host the 24th annual Tea Off Against Breast Cancer for the Love of Clara on June 4th at Willowbrook Golf Course, 4200 Lake Avenue. The tournament was spearheaded by club member Clara Tilney as a way to make others aware of the fight against cancer and raise funds, excuse me, for cancer research. Now in Tilney's memory, the tournament highlights the club's fundraising efforts, allowing for both a generous donation to fight breast cancer and provide services and to continue the club's numerous programs for youth. 
The tournament is limited to 144 golfers, so early registration is encouraged. Early bird registration, $115 per person, closes May 19th. After that, the fee is $130. Included are lunch, green fees, cart, a chicken dinner, beer, wine, soda, trophies, and prizes. Hole-in-one contests offer prizes including $5,000 cash in hole number 2 north. Closest to the pin on the second hole wins a putter. Lunch is served and registration begins at 11.30 a.m. with a shotgun start at 1 p.m. for the four-person scramble tournament. Non-golfers can support the fundraiser by purchasing a chicken dinner for $35 by May 28th. The dinners will be prepared by the chefs at the Willowbrook. The basket raffle is open to the public and will run from 11.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. with prize pickup after 5.30 p.m. Donated raffle items are still being accepted. A 50-50 raffle will be conducted as well. As Barge Canal Optimist Club members continue to fight this fight, both personally and to find a cure for this deadly disease, we continue to grow this tournament, Coordinator Peggy Allen said. Clara's passion, determination, and strength will always be contagious. We can't thank the community enough for their support. The registration forms and more information about the raffles, for, I'm sorry, form registration forms and more information about the raffles, visit Barge Canal Optimist Club on Facebook or contact Peggy Allen at bargecanaloptimists at gmail.com. Now, in local news, we have an article about Gary and Kathy Siddle met, and they met at a Rotary Club trip to Ottawa in 1973. The title of the article is Couple Was Meant to Be. Lewiston. When you make the commitment to love someone, you have to work at it no matter what circumstances life throws at you. That's how it went for Canadian-born Lewiston residents Carrie, or Gary and Kathy Siddle, who met on May 14, 1973, on a Rotary Club of Canada-sponsored trip to Ottawa. The two had a very had had the two had very eventful lives together, as Gary's career meant a lot of travel for the family they made. The two will share their story of meeting on this trip and their continued love at Wednesday's meeting of the Lewiston-Niagara-on-the-Lake Rotary Club, taking place in Niagara Falls, Ontario. The branch is celebrating its 85th anniversary this year. We want to give appreciation to the Rotary Club, Kathy explained. Gary hailed from Windsor, Ontario, across the Detroit River from Detroit, and Kathy is from Woodstock, New Brunswick, near its border with Maine. Their hometowns are separated by 1,200 miles. Their respective high schools chose them for this trip, Kathy by winning a speaking contest and Gary through a rotating basis on the Windsor Rotary Club did among the the city's 13 high schools. These trips are still put on today, teaching the students about the rights and responsibilities of Canadian citizens. While in the Canadian capital, the students on this trip were put in homes of other Rotarians with Kathy in a home with two girls Gary traveled with. The first night, they had a meet and greet at the gym, Kathy said. He saw those two girls sitting on the bleachers and came over to sit with them, and I was sitting with them, and that's how we met. We just started talking because we really liked the music we were listening to, Gary said. The next morning, we had to get on the bus to go to different activities. I said, let's try to get on the same bus. During their four-day stay in Ottawa, the two visited the Canadian Parliament Building, saw the House of Commons in action, met the then-Governor-General of Canada, Roland Michener, visited museums, planted a tree in Jacques Cartier Park, and met the ambassador to Mexico. At its, 
as it became time to depart, since cell phones did not exist yet, they became pen pals for the next six years, still keeping the, the letters they sent to each other in their Lewiston home. They would try to visit each other once a year, but led separate lives. As Gary started working for GM's Oshawa operations and Kathy worked as a pharmacist outside of Ottawa, oh, I'm sorry. As Gary started working for GM's Oshawa operations and Kathy as a pharmacist outside of Ottawa, he would date other people but still remained in contact. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. In December 1978, when looking for a date for a Christmas dance, his roommate at the time suggested he call her. I finally got a hold of her and I said, we should get together, Gary said. The two separated by only 200 miles instead of 1,200. The first thing she said was, what are you doing this weekend? The following February, after visiting her with her parents, Gary and Kathy were engaged. They married in October 1979, and eventually having four children, Catherine, Sean, Kendra, and Scott. Gary's career in GM saw him and the family make a number of moves, from Oshawa to Michigan for four years, then to Sweden after GM bought Saab. They arrived in Niagara County after Gary's, Gary got a position at Lockport's Delphi, Delphi operation, choosing Lewiston to live because the Lewport School District was able to accommodate their eldest daughter, a senior at the time. Even after moving here and Gary expecting to retire at Delphi, the 2008 recession came and he had to move again for other work assignments to Ohio, Mexico, and Michigan over the next few years. Unlike before, his whole family would not come with him as Kathy did not want to disrupt their kids' lives further. Two of them stayed at Lewiston, or I'm sorry, at Lewport, while two went with their father to Ohio for school. During that time, Kathy had not worked in the pharmacy field for 17 years, so she needed to learn how to be a pharmacist again. That required her to go to Canada for work, where she is licensed and had to work so many hours there. Every day I traveled from El Paso, Texas, into Juarez and had to go through the border crossing, Gary said about his time in Mexico. And while Kathy's here in Lewiston, every day she went from Lewiston to Ontario to work in Canada. So the two of us were crossing international borders every day for five years. The two would still figure out how to occasionally meet, either in Phoenix or in their Florida condo. Even as Gary would get home, get a home in Ohio, the two still kept onto their kept kept onto their Calkin Road home. We wanted to keep this home because it was the only home the kids would really call home, Gary said, calling their residence the family meeting place when they were able to meet on weekends and holidays as their kids went to Canadian colleges. Kathy said it was serendipitous, serendipitous that they settled in a place close to the Canadian border. Despite meeting through a Rotary Club program in their high schools, the Siddles were never club members due to their busy lives. Gary did serve on the Board of Trustees from 2008 to 2014. Gary finally retired from his job in 2016 and Kathy in 2017. Their four children have given them 10 grandchildren that visit at them every weekend. At least 10 of their 40-plus years of marriage were spent apart, but the Siddles managed to stay together, Gary saying that every time they met, they had to get to know each other all over again. We all figured that this was just meant to be, Kathy said. You don't throw things away when they're broke, you fix them. Wednesday is Appeal 2023 Hope Day. 
Day of Match Giving Supports Catholic Charities 9.5 Million Goal. Hope Day, the 24-hour match challenge day of giving to benefit Catholic Charities of Buffalo's annual appeal is Wednesday. The first 111,000 raised will be matched dollar for dollar by donors including Delaware North, Energy Mark, and Taman Asphalt Paving. This year's appeal goal is 9.5 million and to date about 7 million, 74% has been raised, about six weeks remaining in the campaign. Over the last five hope days, a total of nearly 2 million has been raised in support of the annual appeal, said Deacon Steve Schumer, President and CEO of Catholic Charities. While we are grateful for the generosity of Western New York, of the Western New York community, um, for the appeal 2023 to date, we still have some ground to make up as we strive to reach our campaign goal in just a few short weeks. You can help bring hope to our neighbors who need it most by joining us on Hope Day. During Hope Day, appeal volunteers and Catholic Charity staff members make phone calls to those who haven't donated yet this year, giving them a chance to double their gift. Hope Day provides a significant boost to our campaign, said Adam Sumlin, Ph.D., Appeal 2023 Chair. While every dollar raised makes a difference in providing hope and ensuring that much-needed programs and services can continue, on Hope Day, that dollar does twice as much with the match component. The annual appeal, which continues until June 30th, helps fund 57 programs and services administered by Catholic charities across dozens of locations and many diocesan ministries through the Fund for the Faith. Catholic Charities is a comprehensive human services provider serving people of all ages and faiths across all counties, all eight counties of Western New York. Its programs and services include basic emergency assistance, such as food pantries, educational and vocational advancement services, family safety and stabilization services, immigration and refugee assistance, behavioral health and substance use treatment, and youth and family support service services. Donations can be made at ccwny.org backslash hope day or call 716-218-1400. Our next story, or yes, our next article is Six Flags Darien Lake Ready to Ride Saturday. Six Flags Darien Lake will kick off the 2023 season with new events and park enhancements on Saturday. Opening day is the beginning of another year of fun at Six Flags Darien Lake, said Park President Chris Thorpe. As New York's largest family-friendly destination, guests will enjoy their favorite rides and slides with a lineup of new and elevated events and experiences, plus comfort enhancements including a new VIP lounge. Darien Lake's 2023 editions include Laser Light Summerfest, all-new laser light spectacular show, dynamic marquee light displays, and a magical living garden with luminescent landscape features and stunning three-dimensional light creatures to enjoy before the show, including an after 5 p.m. Summerfest pre-party in D Darien Square. Viva La Fiesta, live entertainment that will have them dancing the night away. This new, all-new event heats up the park with food, fun, and entertainment. Oktoberfest, the family-friendly German Heritage Festival, will become a new fall tradition filled with authentic fare and a large selection of seasonal craft lagers and beers from all around the world. The VIP Lounge, for a minimal fee, guests can rest and recharge at a new shaded indoor lounge. Cool off in the air conditioning while enjoying beverages, comfortable seating, and Wi-Fi to help guests relax and recharge. 
July 4th fireworks celebration. Holiday with thrills, delicious sweet chills, and exciting fireworks illuminations at night. Park beautification. Refreshed landscaping, a renovated main gate restroom, additional shaded seating for relaxation throughout the park, more photo opportunities, renovated game locations, midway up updates, and much more. Exclusionary zoning at the root of the nation's housing crisis. When Andrew DeFranza pitches plans for new affordable housing developments, he often faces resistance from local officials and neighbors, and in some cases, threats of lawsuits and even physical violence. DeFranza, executive director of the Massachusetts nonprofit Harbor Light Community Partners, says despite the demand for affordable housing, developers face myriad obstacles to expanding the number of homes, especially in suburban communities that are often reluctant to build non-market rate housing. He said cities and towns have for decades used restrictive zoning and pretexts about the local impact to reject new projects. They come up with convenient excuses to deny projects, said DeFranza, who has worked on dozens of affordable housing projects over the years. Things like two-acre minimum zoning, excessive height, and setback limits, and intentional limitations on infrastructure such as water and wastewater treatment. In a similar situation across the nation, I'm sorry, it is a similar situation across the nation. Housing advocates say, as a shrinking inventory of housing for both market-priced and affordable homes is driving up prices and putting the dream of home ownership out of reach for many first-time buyers. Over the past month, reporters from CNHI News Nationwide have sought to examine the issues surrounding affordable housing, which is most impacted by the lack of it and what solutions state and communities have implemented in this multi-part special report. Long-time zoning issues. Despite efforts to ease them, zoning restrictions are widespread in all 50 states, according to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, which cites a 2019 analysis that found that up to 75% of residential land across major U.S. cities is zoned exclusively for detached single-family homes. Between 2006 and 2018, the share of suburban municipalities with minim minimum lot size requirements increased from 83% to 96%, according to the nonprofit advocacy group. The problem is partly rooted in exclusionary zoning practices fueled by racial discrimination, housing advocates say, with white communities using local zoning laws to keep out black, Hispanic, and other minority residents. A lot of zoning restrictions were put in place to prevent low-income people and people of color from entering those neighborhoods, said Sarah Sadian, Senior Vice President of Public Policy and field organizing for the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, a Washington, D.C.-based advocacy group. It stems in large part from structural racism and discrimination. In the Deep South, exclusionary housing policies grew out of Jim Crow laws that contributed to a residential pattern with largely white single-family neighborhoods and few denser communities where many black residents lived. But discriminatory housing policies have been used across the country to preserve whites-only communities, author Richard Rothstein notes in his book, The Color of Law, which explores how housing programs that started under the Democratic President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal were essentially a state-sponsored system of segregation. 
Rothstein said the Federal Housing Administration, which was established in 1934, helped push the segregation efforts by refusing to insure mortgages in and near black neighborhoods. This policy became known as redlining. Juana Matias, New England's Regional Administrator for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, said the legacy of redlining and other discriminatory zone practices are at the core of the nation's housing crisis and must be dealt with as part of any solution. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Recent reports have highlighted that extremely low-income renters likely have even fewer housing options now than they did before the pandemic. Between 2019 and 2021, the shortage of affordable and available rental homes for households with incomes at or below the Federal Poverty Guideline increased by 8% from 6.8 million to 7.3 million, according to the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. Sabine Brown, excuse me, a senior policy analyst with the Oklahoma Policy Institute, who specializes in affordable housing access, said the cost of housing is beyond what most people are earning in the state, even those in good paying professions. That's people like teaching assistants and daycare workers and medical assistants. So a lot of people in good full-time jobs, they're still struggling to afford housing, Brown said. Right now, there is just really not enough good options for those folks. As federal subsidies for affordable housing have dwindled, inflation and supply chain issues have driven up the cost of land, construction materials, and labor, Brat said making it less affordable to build affordable housing. The numbers simply simply don't work, she said. You can't afford to pay 30% of your income to cover the cost of building a housing unit at this point in time. So right there, you have a mathematical no-win situation. DeFranza said the cost of building the housing has skyrocketed putting the squeeze on developers and further complicating efforts to build affordable units. It's been very painful for the past few years, he said. We've never seen anything like it. There was a dramatic increase in a very short period of time. Brad said, although the roots of the housing crisis are deep and complicated, the solution isn't. It will be, it will require, but it will require the political will to solve it. There isn't, this isn't rocket science. We know how to build good housing in this country, she said. We just have to figure out where to put it and how to pay for it. On to the opinion page. Reality of gun violence hit home. Mother's Day is typically a day of joy spent celebrating the lives and contributions of our mothers, grandmothers, and our great-grandmothers. Sadly, it held a very different tone Sunday for many in the Western New York community who were mourning the loss of 10 people gunned down while shopping at the Topps Market in Buffalo. On the one-year anniversary, anniversary, loved ones of the victims were forced to remember all that they lost when a racist man covered in body armor visited the top store on Jefferson Avenue with a pair of assault weapons and ill intent. These shooting victims weren't in the line of fire on a battlefield in some foreign country. They were right here in America, visiting a neighborhood grocery store to do some shopping, a routine practice all of us do in the course of our daily lives. In our time of increasing gun violence, we are all now sadly accustomed to the idea that these sort of regular activities are no longer guaranteed to be worry-free exercises. It seems hardly a day goes by 
when multiple people aren't shot to death while visiting stores or shopping malls or schools or concerts or other places where large numbers of people gather together for one reason or another. Regardless of where you stand on Americans' rights to bear arms, there's no denying the staggering number of mass shootings this country has been forced to endure in recent years. So far in 2023, we as a nation have had more of them than there have been days in the year. The message, this terrible situation isn't improving. It's easy enough with so many people being shot so often to become desensitized to it all, to start viewing victims more as numbers and less as people. The people being killed in those mass shootings, just like those 10 Western New Yorkers last year, were real people with real lives and real family members and real friends. For all the debate about guns in America, two things are certain. They have left an indelible impression on the fabric of our country, and they have had a negative impact on all those who found themselves in the crossfire of our modern-day mass shooting reality. And a stark reality it is. Last year on May 14th, really hit home. Now we are left to mourn. There's no certainty in our current state of affairs that at some point down the line, we won't find ourselves grieving the way their family members and friends will be forced to grieve this weekend and forever. Whether we like it or not, we're all in this together. Mothers and grandmothers, fathers and grandfathers, sisters, brothers, sons and daughters. Guns, as they say, may not kill people, but people with guns certainly have killed a lot of them in America. A stark anniversary like this Sunday should remind us as a community and as a nation that we are all the lesser for it. U.S. Default Threatens National Security by Katherine Rample. A default on the U.S. government debt would be bad for the country's economy. It would be terrible for global financial markets, and it would damage the United States' long-term fiscal health. If these potential consequences are insufficiently concerning, there's an, another one to contemplate. Merely threatening to default could hurt our national security, too. Lately, there has been a growing chorus of concerns about how stiffing creditor, creditors could affect the country's ability to marshal alliances and protect itself. For, interest at the, at the, or for instance, at the group of seven meetings in Japan on Thursday, Treasury Sec Secretary Janet L. Yellen warned that default would risk undermining U.S. global economic leadership and raise questions about our ability to defend our nation's security interests. A week early, earlier, Avril Haines, the Director of National Intelligence, testified that in addition to the expected financial turmoil, there was almost a certainty that Russia and China would take advantage of a U.S. default by highlighting the chaos within the United States that we're not capable of functioning as a democracy. To be fair, the threat to national security would most likely be a several years away consequence, the prospect of global financial crisis as soon as three weeks from now is the immediate cause for concern. And these warnings about national security risk might sound somewhat abstract besides. So let's talk about some mechanisms through which default could damage the country's long-term security interest, using U.S. sanctions policy as an example. The U.S. Treasury securities are desirable to buy because they are considered virtually risk-free. These are seen as rock-solid collateral for other transactions, as well as a useful benchmark for assessing the relative riskiness of other kinds of investments. 
The U.S. dollar has likewise enjoyed its special status as a global reserve currency because the world trusts in our core economic and financial institutions, our commitment to the rule of law, and our willingness to pay our bills. Now consider how sanctions work. The main reason U.S. sanctions have teeth in is that people want to do business with the United States and the U.S. dollars or dollar-dominated assets. Threatening to take away that access could be a powerful tool in getting other nations and companies to behave in ways we like. For example, by not purchasing oil from countries that we consider hostile toward U.S. interests. Now imagine, if you dare, that for silly political reasons, there is more uncertainty about whether we'll actually pay our bills. U.S. debt or U.S. dollars might start to seem like less desirable things to hold or to peg other transactions to. In other countries and companies voluntarily become less reliant on dollars or otherwise less exposed to the U.S. economy, then, well... It's not really so devastating if we threaten to take away that access. There are other possible downstream effects. For example, if creditors start demanding higher interest rates in exchange for lending to us because we've revealed ourselves to be deadbeats, that raises U.S. borrowing costs. It then gets harder or at least more expensive to support our enormous military among all the other things the government spends money on. Now, you might think this scary array of default-related consequences means that President Biden should just give Republicans whatever they want. After all, even the administrator's own cited economic forecasts predict worse damage from default than from adopting the spending caps demanded by House Republicans. Here's the problem with this logic. If you pay a ransom to release a hostage, you encourage more hostage-taking. Biden learned this the hard way in 2011. As vice president, he negotiated a deal to cut spending as an explicit trade for Republican votes on a debt limit increase. Almost immediately thereafter, Republicans tried taking the same hostage again for a different ransom. This time around, Biden has maintained his strict no-negotiating-over-the-debt-limit stance. Administration officials hope to desensitize another episode of brinkmanship next year when, if Biden agreed to go to the House GOP's terms, we'd next hit the borrowing limit. They don't want a repeat of this manufactured crisis year after year and the constant reminder to the world that we might not be a trustworthy economic or geopolitical partner. What, with, what everyone needs now is an off-ramp, something that allows Republicans to save face and that allows Biden to maintain his red line that the full faith and credit of the United States can never again be haggled over. Exactly what that resolution looks like or how lasting it will be is still up for debate. Manchin weighs challenging party duopoly. Progressive Democrats see Senator Joe Manchin III as a buzzard on a branch, feasting on the agenda as a carry-on. Republicans see the West Virginian as the most vulnerable state Democrat next year, Senate Democrat next year. Most disinterested observers consider him an unusual senatorial senator and someone who could challenge today's stagnant party duopoly. Manchin's deviations from party solidarity began soon after his 2010 arrival in the Senate when Democratic leader Harry M. Reid said to him about a particular bill, we're all going to be for this. And Manchin said no, he would not be. In 2020 and 2022, Manchin endorsed the re-election of Maine's Republican Senator Susan Collins and Alaska's Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski, respectively. His opposition 
doomed President Biden's Build Back Better Spending blowout. He has forced modifications of some other Biden extravagances and has been burned by Biden's reneging on some commitments. Breaking ranks today, Manchin urges Biden to negotiate concerning the House Republicans' proposal for lifting the debt ceiling. Speaker McCarthy did his job and passed a bill that would prevent default and finally begin to rein in federal spending. Actually, it is a microscopic beginning. The following program is intended for listeners who are blind, have low vision, or have another print disability.